please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. Let's read those together. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you would stand with me now in honor of God's Word as we read together. Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. Luke writes, On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who needed healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we were to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and made them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up into heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. You may be seated. May we be encouraged by God's word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your provision in our lives, and we pray this morning that we would take advantage of the provision that you've given us, and we pray that you would open our hearts, our souls, our minds to the truths that are contained in your word, and not only open our minds, Father, but give us the ability to apply these truths, and uh, we, we are helpless without you, so give us your grace. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, amen. The Voyage of the Don Treader by C.S. Lewis is one of the Chronicles of Narnia. It's one of the books in that series. And in the story, story The Voyage of the Don Treader, there's a young boy named Eustace. And Eustace, as Lewis might put it, was a beastly little boy. And not only was he a beastly little boy, but he became a beast. Eustace, in the course of the story, is turned into a dragon. And try as he might, Eustace cannot stop being a dragon. He is completely unable to undragon himself. And then he meets the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, the great lion Aslan. And Aslan is able to help him. Later, Eustace describes to his cousin Edmund what had happened when he met the great lion Aslan. Let me read a little bit. For you, he's just met Eustace, meets Aslan, and Aslan tells him to take off his dragon skin, and this is what Eustace says happened. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I stepped out of it. I could see the dragon skin lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling. But 
just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that my feet were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Oh, that's all right, said I. It only means that I have another smaller suit on underneath the first one, and I'll have to get out of it, too. So I scratched and and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully, and out I stepped and left it lying there beside the other one. Well, exactly the same thing happened again, and I thought to myself, oh dear, how many skins have I got to take off? So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin just like the two others and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then, Eustace says, the lion told me that I would have to let him take off the dragon skin. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And Eustace describes how Aslan, the lion, was able to finally remove the dragon's skin and he was able to become a boy again. Each of us in our lives have dragon skins, right? And there are points in our lives where where we realize we are unable to truly take off those dragon skins. In other words, we are unable in our own life to enact true spiritual change. Try as we might, scratch as we will, the surface level uh, solutions that we try to accomplish on our own are ineffective. And not only are we unable to meet the needs in our own life, to address true spiritual change in our own life, we are also unable to address the needs that others around us have. Because as as certain as I'm standing here, there are people in your life with dragon skins as well. That God sovereignly brings into your life and, and into my life. And, and they say, look, help me with this, this problem I have. Help me take off this, this dragon skin. And you and I come to them and, and we scratch and we peel, and yet nothing is effective. Now, Scripture, of course, this morning offers us a solution. But I've got to be very transparent with you this morning. <laughs> Last night I was talking to Whitney about this passage, and she said, you know, how's it going? How are things going? And she knows that I'm kind of pessimistic on a Saturday night anyway. But I said, look, I don't know if I can preach this tomorrow. I mean, I know that the principles in, in the passage, I know what Scripture's saying here, but, but I have failed to apply the solution that Scripture offers this week. And, and maybe you're there as well. And I'll tell you, last night I had just had to confess before God, God, I know what your word says, I know the solution you, you offer, and I have failed miserably at it. Because there have been a lot of dragon skins in my life this past week, and maybe the same is true for you as well. All sorts of, of problems that people have, problems that I have, as Ben mentioned this morning, it just seems like there are a lot of needs in our church this past week. Uh, 
Ben, Mike, and I, and, and other staff and elders have been kind of emailing each other back and forth all week. And last night I got some more emails from Ben, and I just emailed them back. And I said, you're kidding me. Stop it. <laughs> how can this, you know, how can all these needs possibly exist? And maybe you're in the same place, and you say, you know what? God's brought my, my spouse into my life, and, and this, this, my, my, my wife or my husband has all these, these problems that I, I want to be able to help them with. Or maybe you're a kid in school, and there are friends that have a lot of problems, or, or <coughs> maybe, <coughs> excuse me. Maybe that there are uh, people in your life, co-workers, their friends, families, all sorts of needs in your life, and you're feeling simply overwhelmed. And you're coming to the point where you say, you know what, I don't have the resources in and of myself to address these problems. I'm overwhelmed. I can't do it. What we're seeing, going to see this morning is that the disciples have to come to a similar realization and, all, and realize that God offers an all-satisfying solution to this problem that they face of being unable to meet the needs of other people. Let's look at the text together. If you're not already there, turn there. Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. And as if you haven't already turned there, as you turn there, let me just kind of remind you a little bit about the context. Two weeks ago, we looked at this passage, and we looked at verse 1. We saw that Jesus calls the 12 together, and he gives them power, and he gives them authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So Jesus gives the disciples this task to do and the ability to do it. There are his missionaries, his apostles, his envoys to go and do this kingdom work. And they go, and it's extremely successful, right? We see that in verse, uh, verses 3 through 5, he tells them what to do. Then verse 6, it says they departed, and they went through the villages, preaching the gospels and healing everywhere. Their ministry is successful. In fact, it's so successful, the text tells us, that Herod heard about it. Verse 7, Herod hears about all that's going on, and he's perplexed. He's wondering about this kingdom ministry of Jesus and his disciples. So Jesus and his disciples have had this successful ministry. The disciples have been commissioned by Jesus to go and proclaim the kingdom on their own. They do it. They come back. Now here's the problem. We're going to see the first part of the text. The problem is this. There are times in your life when it becomes painfully obvious that the resources you possess are inadequate for meeting people's needs. There are times in your life when it becomes painfully obvious that the resources you possess are inadequate for meeting people's needs. The disciples have just come off. They've had this wonderful ministry. And then we come to verse 10. Verse 10, they return. And the apostles tell Jesus all that they had done. So you can imagine Jesus coming there. The disciples begin to come back two at a time, four are there, six are there, eight. And they begin to tell Jesus all that's taken place. It says they, they tell him all that they had done. It's like a person that just comes back from a retreat or a conference or a vacation. And it's been a really exciting vacation or conference or retreat. And they tell you every detail. And, and then we did this. And then we did, oh, and, oh and I forgot to tell you about this. This happened as well. And then this happened. And Jesus is going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Great, great, great. They're pumped. They're excited about what's taking place. And then it tells us that Jesus, as he hears them reporting all that they've done, he goes, you know what, guys, let's do this. 
let's withdraw a little bit. We need to spend some time together. Let's debrief about what's taken place. And what we're going to see in the Gospel of Luke is that a new phase of ministry is beginning. They've been in the Galilean area for most of this first part of the Gospel of Luke. And he's been, they've been seeing Jesus proclaim the kingdom. Now at the beginning of chapter 9, he's called them to proclaim the kingdom. And throughout chapter 9, he's going to reveal some things about his ministry, about who he is. We're going to see Peter make the great confession about him being the Christ. He's going to reveal his glory. I don't want to give too much away because those are future sermons. And I want you to be excited about those as well. But go ahead, read ahead. So... That's, that's coming. Jesus recognizes as they're excited about all the fruit that their ministry has borne, he needs to talk to them a little bit about what's taken place. And so they withdraw to this northwest region of the Sea of Galilee, to this town called Bethsaida. And from that town of Bethsaida, apparently they set out to a more desolate place. And Jesus' plans, apparently, are to talk to them about their ministry, to do some discipleship here, But verse 11 tells us this. The crowds learn about where Jesus is. And as Jesus and his disciples are out in this desolate place where Jesus' intention is to disciple these 12 disciples, the crowds begin to show up. And as they begin to, to trickle in, the disciples and Jesus realize that God the Father has a different intent for them at this moment. My tendency, when I have one ministry plan and God changes it with different kingdom plans, my tendency is to become a little uptight, perhaps even a little resentful, but that's not how Jesus responds, is it? What does the text tell us? It says that as the crowds follow Jesus and hear where he is, they, that he welcomed them. And as the crowds come to Jesus, he welcomes them and he engages in further kingdom ministry. As the crowds come, he uses this time to tell them about the kingdom of God. And presumably it's the same message that he's been proclaiming throughout his ministry. God's kingdom is coming, and if you desire to participate in God's kingdom, repent from your sins and place your faith in me. He is curing all those who need healing, verse 11 tells us. So that's the scenario, right? Jesus, disciples, disciples are pumped about the ministry they've just had. They're telling Jesus that we did this, we did this. Jesus says, let's talk a little bit about God's kingdom and about what's coming. He withdraws with them, and as they're talking, all of a sudden the crowds show up, and Jesus engages in kingdom ministry. Now, here's where things get a little strange. The day begins to wear on. And these disciples take it upon themselves to give Jesus an instruction. Jesus is engaging in ministry. The disciples look around them and say, you know what? We're out in this desolate place. There's no lodging for these people. Uh, There's no food. Who knows what the health hazard is? We're really liable out here. Uh, We don't want to get in trouble. And so they give Jesus this instruction. They say, Jesus, you need to send the crowds away. Kingdom ministry needs to to stop right now, Jesus, because uh, we don't have any lodging for all these people and we don't have any food. In other words, they're a little confident in their assessment of the situation. They give Jesus option A or option B. Look, Jesus, either option A, all these people stay out here and starve to death, 
We've got a, bunch of hung, got a hungry mob on our hands. Or option B, you send them away. That brings us to the next verse, verse 13. Very interesting. But he said to them, nah, I choose option C. Give them something to eat. Come on, guys, you're excited about your ministry. You're, you're casting out demons. You're healing people. Why don't you give them something to eat? I'd like to continue to do kingdom ministry, and so go ahead and give them something to eat. I believe that Jesus is reminding them of something we saw at the very beginning of the chapter. Who gave the disciples the ability to do this ministry in the first place? It wasn't inherent in, them, inherent in themselves. It was Jesus who gave them the power and the authority to do this ministry. And now Jesus says this. Okay, option A is to uh, stop doing ministry. Option, or option A is to let all the people starve to death. Option B is to, to stop doing ministry. I choose option C. I'm going to continue to do ministry, and we're going to feed them. And the disciples go, huh? That's going to happen in our life sometimes, isn't it? We're going to look at a situation and we're going to say, look, uh, God, my work is making incredible demands on me right now. My family has a lot of needs right now that, that I know I need to meet. The church has a lot of needs that need to be met right now by me. And sometimes our tendency, like the disciples, is to too soon say, burn out. Can't, can't do it all. God, take one of those things away. And sometimes, sometimes God says this, mm, no, sorry. In fact, here's something else. Jesus says, no. No, we're going to continue to do ministry, and we're going to feed everyone. In fact, you give them something to eat. And here's what the disciples do, and this is what I do as well, and this is what I'm guilty of even this week, and I've had to confess it and uh, pray that God wouldn't make me hypocritical even preaching this message. But here's what the disciples do. The disciples, as Jesus says, give them something to eat, take an inventory of the resources they believe they have at their disposal. They say, look, Jesus, we've got five loaves and two fish. Or as we say in children's ministry, we've got five loaves and two fishies. And uh, Philip, Philip, we see in John chapter 6, says this. He goes, look, uh, Jesus, 5,000, we need 200 denarii just to give these people one meal. And we, we don't have that. That's a 200 days worth of wages. Not only do we need that, and, uh, Andrew says in John chapter 6 as well, he, he says this phrase, very telling. He says, we have, here's a small boy with five loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? That is what I do. That's what you do as well. We look at the ministry's needs that exist before us, the needs that people feel that they have, we see that there are needs that we want to be able to meet, and we look at all these needs that exist in our lives, the financial needs and, and the needs that our, our spouse has, the needs that our friends at school have, the, the uh, different needs that exist in our lives, and we say, okay, those are the needs. Here's what I got. God, what is this among so many? I, I've got nothing. My resources are inadequate for meeting other people's needs. 
And God says, exactly. Bingo. Your resources are inadequate for meeting people's needs. So we evaluate our resources. We come to that conclusion. Now, let me kind of give you three truths that are kind of related to this problem. Truth number one, you can accomplish a lot of good things apart from God's supernatural work in your life. You can accomplish a lot of seemingly good things apart from God's supernatural work in your life. Matthew chapter 6, for example, Jesus talks about the Pharisees. Man, they fast, they do all these things, they look great. God's not involved in it, of course, but they're doing those things. You can accomplish, it's true, you can accomplish a lot of seemingly good things, and God doesn't need to even be involved in the equation. You can do it. In fact, secondly, you can be extremely busy, and God can not be involved in it whatsoever, supernaturally. You can be doing the children's ministry, you can be ministering at home, you can be ministering the PTA, you can be meeting the needs of your, your friends at school, you can be doing track and basketball, you can be extremely busy, and God cannot be involved in it whatsoever. It's an interesting passage of 1 Corinthians 9, is, is a, is a, a pat, Paul says something that I find extremely convicting. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul's talking about all these ministry activities that, that, that he's involved in, these, these, these things that he does in order to reach people with the gospel of Christ. And he says this in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 9, he says, don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive an imperishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And then he says in verse 26, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. I don't run aimlessly. I don't just go out there and kind of jog a little here and jog a little there. I don't just kind of box the air. I'm disciplined. You know, you can probably tell that I lift weights extensively. I don't. It just looks like I do. <laughs> But I have friends that do. <laughs> I have friends that, you know, I, my friend Dan uh, took me one time and, and showed me some, some things to do to lift weights, and, and I'd like to, to do better at that. And, and uh, my tendency when I, when I do uh, venture beyond the, the treadmill or running outside or something into the weight area, I'll pick up a weight and I'll, you know, I'm doing the eagle, you know, the elephant, five pounds, you know, and, and I don't really have a goal here. It's just, you know, kind of messing around with the weights. It's aimlessness. And uh, clearly not very effective. But a person who's good at lifting weights, you know, like my friend Dan, he talked about books that he'd read. And you do this on this day and this on this day. And you have these plans and you, you, you build upon what you've done. And, 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 and it's, it's not aimlessness. You and I can be doing a lot of things, but God's not involved in enabling those things. And, it, and it's just kind of useless things. But, man, are we busy, okay? So the, the truths here from this, this text that I think that we see are that, that you can be really involved in accomplishing lots of good things apart from supernatural work. You can even uh, be uh, doing lots of, of things in general, be very busy apart from God's supernatural work. But you cannot sustain life 
life-changing ministry on your own. In other words, you are not going to be able to meet the needs of others in a satisfying way on your own. You can scratch at their dragon scales, but you're not going to be able to get to the heart of the issue on your own. It's a problem that we have as individuals, and it's a problem that we have as a church as well. You know, several decades ago, the Rolling Stones sang a song that could really be the anthem of the Western world, song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, right? Not only is it grammatically incorrect, double negative, I can't get no satisfaction, it should be I, I can't get satisfaction, but anyway, not only is it grammatically incorrect, it perfectly describes our current cultural malaise. It says, I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try. I can't get no, I can't get no, no satisfaction. Triple negative there. But it's true, right? Uh, the Rolling Stones scathingly capture that, that, uh, that, that discontent, that dissatisfaction with this material consumerism of the West. Now, that anthem when they sang it several decades ago, describes the, the Western world well at that time and now. But what's true is this. Not only does that describe the Western world in general, that's also the song that could be sung by the average church attender in the West as well, can't it? I come to church and I try and I try and I try, but I, I can't get no satisfaction. I'm not satisfied with what the church is giving me. Let me suggest this to you. The consumer mindset of the believer in a church is killing the church. It's killing the church. I've quoted before from The Courage to be Protestant by David Wells. Let me quote from him again. The, he perfectly captures the consumerism that the Rolling Stones lamented as he talks about the church. He says, these, the inhabitants of a modernized world, are the church's customers, at least in the West. So why not pitch to them? Why not compete for them? Why not bring into the church the proven techniques of market penetration? Why not speak the language of the marketplace, which is the language of the capitalistic West, and sell, sell, sell? Why not pitch the church to consumers as a product, as an experience that will meet the needs that they are experiencing in this kind of world. The evangelical church, at least a good slice of it, is nervous, twitchy, and touchy about consumer desire, ready to change in a nanosecond at the slightest hint that tastes and interests have changed. Why? Because consumer appetite reigns. And consumer appetite and consumer rights go hand in hand. Those who attend churches are now like any other customers you might meet in the mall. Displease them in any way, and they will take their business elsewhere. And this is the fear that lurks in many a church leader's soul, because they know that is how the marketplace works. And it's sad, but it's true. The problem for the church is this. As people come into the church with all these needs that we see and these desires, we try to give them something. So, for example, 
a person comes in the church and they say, you know, I, I want the youth group to look like this, and I want a youth group that has these three things, and so you try to give those people those, those three things, and, and then someone else wants something different, and, and before you know it, you're, you're, you're trying the best that you can to meet all these consumer needs, but the bottom line is this. The youth group is never going to be perfect in addressing all the needs that people feel it needs to have. I've been a youth pastor. I know what I'm talking about, I think, here. The worship music is never going to be the right amount of soft or the right amount of loud. The, the worship music is never going to reach that perfect balance. Uh, the sermon is never going to be exactly the right length. It's always going to be too short or too long. The, the pastor is always going to be too funny or, or not funny enough. The, the temperature in the auditorium is always going to be too cold, right? <laughs> Amen, I heard a couple. I didn't really hear that. The point is this. Our needs that a church tries to meet, sometimes the, the church just throws up its hands and says, I, I can't meet all these consumer needs. And the problem is the resources that we're drawing upon are human, man-centered resources. And it's not just true in a church, it's true in your individual life. You know, your, your children have all these things that they believe they need, or, or your work has all these things that they believe they need you to give them, or your, 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 uh, your friends, your coworkers have these needs that, that they say, I need this, I need that, and you're trying to meet all these needs, and you say, I can't do it. <laughs> what if we did this? What if as a church, what if as individuals, instead of offering people what they think they need, we offer them something far better and far more satisfying, something that we give them, and they say, oh, oh my. A resource that never runs out. A resource that satisfies completely, that comes not from ourselves, but from God, look at the solution in the text. The solution is this. Christ is the all-satisfying bread of heaven who freely provides himself. The disciples come to Jesus and they go, uh, Jesus, <laughs> uh, either send people home or leave them here and let them starve to death and we have this, or we have this hungry mob on our hands. Jesus says, no, I'm going to do something different. We're going to go ahead and give them food and continue to do kingdom ministry. The disciples do an inventory. Uh, we don't have enough money and we don't have enough food in order to meet these needs. But what do they not do? What do they not do? They don't ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, what do you think we should do here? Or Jesus, uh, we, don't, we can't do that. Do you mind doing that for us? They don't do it. They simply look at what they have at that moment and say it's impossible. Jesus then does this. We'll ask verse 14. By the way, I forgot to mention this, after they, they talk about their lack of resources, Luke reminds us there's about 5,000 men plus women and children. So Jesus says to the disciples, uh, do this, make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And the disciples do so. So in other words, Jesus gives them the instruction, disciples, go do this. The disciples tell the people, hey, do this. Jesus tells the disciples, the disciples tell the people. 
Then Jesus himself takes the five loaves and the two fish. And he looks up into heaven and he says a blessing over them. It's very interesting. He breaks the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. It's hard to picture exactly what takes place. How exactly do these five loaves and two fish like keep on multiplying? What Luke is telling us here is this, this word that he uses uh, for gave, it implies a, a continuous giving in the original language. So in other words, the disciples keep coming to Jesus, and Jesus keeps giving them bread and fish to distribute, and then they take what Jesus gives them, they go out, they give it, and then they come back to Jesus, and he gives them more, and so they go out, and, and they distribute among the 5,000 people. Who's the one providing the resources? It's very clear, it's Jesus. But Jesus doesn't himself go around and just distribute it to everyone. He allows his disciples to be involved in the ministry, the ministry that they said they couldn't do. Jesus, we can't take five loaves and two fishies and distribute them to everyone. Jesus says, you're right. Here you go. Hand them out. Come back. Here you go. Hand them out. Come back. Here you go. Jesus provides them the ability to do what they thought was impossible in ministry. And then we come to what I believe is one of the most crucial parts of the entire text, verse 17. Verse 17 says, everyone ate, all, and, all, and, they ate and they all ate, and what? They were satisfied. It wasn't like Jesus broke these breads into like really tiny pieces. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> that was delicious. Please, sir, may I have another? No. He gives them the food in abundance. And everyone has all that they need. He gives them these directions. They're obedient. And everyone is satisfied. And what was left over and picked up was 12 baskets of broken pieces. Jesus provides them with this food in great abundance. That's really one of the main themes of the Gospel of Luke, is that power to do ministry comes from Jesus. Luke chapter 4, verse 14, it says, Jesus uh, comes in the power of the Spirit. Luke 4.36 says, uh, who is, what, is this, what is this word for with authority and power? He commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Luke 5.17 says, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Luke 6.19 says, the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. Luke 8.46, remember the this, this story we looked at several weeks ago when this woman touches Jesus. Jesus says, I perceive that power has gone out from me, and then at the beginning of Luke 9, he gives them power. Now later, the disciples understand this. In fact, if you want to turn over in your Bibles to the book of Acts, you have Luke, we're in Luke, and then John, and then the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, Jesus gives them this instruction. Verse 8, he says, you will receive 
Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And throughout the book of Acts, we see the disciples doing ministry on the strength and through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not power that's within themselves, and they begin to understand what Jesus is saying in Luke 9 as they do ministry in the book of Acts. In fact, if you turn over just a chapter or two to Acts chapter 3, remember this is the story of the lame beggar. The lame beggar is, is uh, begging for these, these uh, resources, and it says that John and Peter are there, and Peter directs his gaze at him in verse 4. Verse 5, fixing his attention on him, or the beggar fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And so he's able to walk, and he, he's praising and leaping. He's leaping and praising God. People are astonished at what Peter and John have done later in chapter 3. In verse 12 of chapter 3 of Acts, uh, Peter says, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the Holy One and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And he goes through and he's revealing to them that it's by his name, verse 16, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. The faith that is through Jesus has given this man, the man, this perfect health in the presence of you all. Christ is the all-satisfying bread of heaven who freely provides himself. You and I are unable to meet these needs on our own, but through faith in Christ, we can have this resource to give those who are in need the resource of Christ. The story isn't ultimately about food, is it? It's about the provision of, of a Savior, the provision of Christ. This past week was Austin's, or just turned eight, Austin's birthday, our second child. And um, we, we gave what we thought was a really cool gift to Austin. We had been for, for some time talking about how it'd be kind of fun to take the older two kids snow skiing. Now, we're from Texas, and um, we're not totally sure what snow skiing is. We're still learning what snow is, although we've learned that pretty quick from shoveling so much of it. But so we, we, we thought we'd take our, our, our child snow skiing, and, and uh, neither one of us snow skied before, like, high school. And, and even then, the, the trips we took were very short. I may have been four times in my life, and so we decided to take Austin snow skiing. We told him about his gift on Wednesday, and on Thursday we took the afternoon, just kind of an afternoon trip to kind of uh, go down some, some slopes there, or hills in Andalusia, just, just north of here. Well, we give this gift to Austin expecting just great excitement and thrills. And we hear Austin and his sister talking about this gift. And uh, Hannah says, I'm a 9 out of 10 excited. And Austin goes, yeah, I'm a 5 out of 10, you know. I'm kind of nervous about this. I'm not too sure how snow skiing is going to go. How high is it? I'm kind of nervous. And, uh, you know, 
as a father who had given this gift, what did I want him to be? I wanted him to be like 11 out of 10, right? So we, we drive there to the, the skiing place, and the kids get out of the car, and, they, and Hannah goes, I'm a 10 out of 10. And Austin goes, I'm a 9 out of 10. This is pretty cool. Then we ski, and at the end of the day, Austin's like, Dad, I'm a 10 out of 10. This is awesome. And I'm like, I'm a 10 out of 10. You didn't break something. But what did that, I, I found great joy because Austin was finding satisfaction and joy in what we had given him. The reason that God doesn't allow us to find satisfaction in anything but him is he wants us to find our joy in him. And he receives more glory as we receive joy and satisfaction in him alone. I want you to look at the book of John with me, if you will. We're going we're gonna to look at this story from John's perspective as well. Bear with me here. And in the book of John, John chapter 6, he's just described Jesus feeding the 5,000 as well. And then we come to what happens afterwards, right? Remember, the, the, they've just fed the 5,000, and then John tells us what happened the next day. It says in verse 22, the next day the crowd uh, tries to find Jesus, and they come and they find him, verse 25, and Jesus says, verse 26, look, I know why you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill, fill of the loaves. Don't labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the God, God the Father has set his seal. In other words, he's saying, look, I know why you're chasing me. It's not because you want me. It's because you're hungry for seconds. And then what do the people say? They say, well, what do we need to do? And Jesus says, you need to believe in me. And then the people say, ah, we have an idea. What sign are you going to do? What work are you going to perform? We've got an idea. Why don't you give us some more food? You know, Moses gave the people manna. Why don't you, I don't know, give us more food? Then we'll believe on you. Then Jesus says these words in verse 32. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir... We like some of that bread always. Jesus said to them, verse 35, no, no, no. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The people say, they grumble about that. Jesus says down in verse 27, truly, 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. But this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What he's talking there is about this satisfaction for our sins that he's going to offer by offering his own body as a sacrifice for us. And then he offers himself as the all-satisfying bread of heaven. And you and I can come to him in faith 
and receive perfect and full satisfaction. I don't know what needs exist in your life. I don't know what dragon skins exist in your life that you've been trying to remove from yourself or scratch off of other people. But what I do know is this. As we look at our own resources to meet those needs, we are completely unable to do so. We, like the disciples, look at those needs and say, it's not going to happen. I, I can't meet the needs that my employer and my spouse or my teacher at school or my friends at school or, or the, the people that God has brought in my life, all these needs, enough, I can't do it. And yet, God says, I know. And sometimes God says, look, I'm not going to remove any of these needs from your life. You know, burnout is possible. I'm not advocating burnout, but, but burnout isn't necessarily a, a biblical word to use whenever God puts these ministries in your life and doesn't remove any of them. And God says, I know that your resources are insufficient for meeting these people's needs. Let me give you the bread of heaven. Here's Jesus. And instead of offering people something on your own strength, why don't you try this? Taste it first yourself and see that he is good and his word is satisfying. And then take that satisfaction and give it to others. When I ask you this question this morning, are you satisfied with life? What would you say? Are you satisfied with life? Do you find satisfaction in life? Perhaps you say, yes, I do, but I want to find more satisfaction in Jesus. Is that wrong? No, that's not wrong at all. In fact, let me read you something that John Piper wrote one time. He said, he was talking about John 4.14, about Jesus being the eternal spring. Piper says this, when you drink my water, your thirst is not destroyed forever. If it did that, would you feel any need of my water afterward? That is not my goal. I do not want, I do not want self-sufficient saints. When you drink my water, it makes a spring in you. A, a spring satisfies thirst, not by removing the need that you have for water, but by being there to give you water whenever you get thirsty again and again and again. So maybe you say this morning, look, I'm satisfied, but I still long and yearn for Jesus. Is that wrong? No, that's what the bread of life, the eternal water is all about, continually coming to, to God for complete satisfaction. But maybe that's not how you answer the question this morning when I ask if you're satisfied with life. Maybe you say, you know what? I am not satisfied. I'm not satisfied at all with the things that are in my life. Perhaps the reason for that, perhaps the reason for that is because you've been seeking satisfaction in things that cannot bring true satisfaction. And not only are you unable to meet your own needs and find satisfaction in your own life, perhaps the people who are around you who have needs that you're trying to meet aren't finding satisfaction as well. And the reason they're not finding the satisfaction is because you're not offering them the bread of life, that eternal spring. I want to close with these verses from Jeremiah chapter 2. In Jeremiah chapter 2, the Lord says this. It says, my people, this is verse 13 of Jeremiah 2. 
He says, my people have committed two evils, two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. They've forsaken me, the fountain of, the fountain of living waters. And two, they've hooted out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. A cistern would be like this, this uh, uh, hole that would be dug in a desert place, and, and it would be uh, covered with limestone so that it could collect water. And this, this runoff water would collect in this little basin, and a, a traveler, whenever they needed water, could find this cistern, and, and, and it wouldn't be very tasty. It wouldn't be, you know, look all that great, but it, it could give you something. It would give you water. And what God is saying is, look, I'm this spring. I'm this eternal spring that, that you can come to, and whenever you're thirsty, drink from and, and be satisfied, and you've turned from me this living spring, this eternal spring, and instead you've dug for yourself this hole of, of water, and it's broken, and all that's left in it is sludge, and you're drinking that instead. I told you this morning, look, I, I preached to an audience of one, God, and this morning, I'm the secondary audience, and you guys are just here to catch whatever I miss, right? I'm taking notes myself this morning, you know? Sometimes life just seems so overwhelming. <laughs> what does Jeremiah 2 tell us? What does Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17 tell us? Of course it's overwhelming. Of course we don't have the resources necessary to help the people in our lives. Of course we don't have the resources to meet our own needs. And instead of trying to meet the, the needs of others and ourselves with our, our sludge water, our five loaves and two fish, why don't we instead offer ourselves and those whom God has placed in our life the all-satisfying bread of heaven who freely provides himself to us. And all may eat and be satisfied. Let's pray. And Father, I, I thank you for your son Jesus. And help us to offer Jesus to those who are in our lives, to, to not seek to offer ourselves, not seek to offer our own pitiful offerings, but instead to offer this all-satisfying bread of heaven, your Son, Jesus Christ, and through faith in him, we receive your eternal life. We pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.